and welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Guramurthy, and we're your co-hosts on the show. And we want to say a big thank you to everyone who's listening, and not just for listening, but emailing us with your thoughts and ideas for topics and guests. That email again is displaced at rescue.org. And thank you for sharing the show on Twitter and Facebook. We appreciate it all, so keep it coming. Get in touch with us. I am at Grant M. Gordon, and Ravi is at rgurmurthy on Twitter. We love the reviews and ratings you leave us. It helps us grow. So if you haven't done so, leave a review and let us know what you're thinking. So today on Displaced, we've got Helene Gale, and she's had an incredible career spanning global health, international development, and humanitarian response. She has led a very large organization called CARE that spans over 90 countries. She now leads um, the Chicago Community Trust, but she's also spent time um, leading the McKinsey Social Initiative and spent over 20 years in government at the Center for Disease Control, where she played a critical role in working on HIV and AIDS issues. I am really excited to talk with uh, Helene today, in part because she began her career right at the beginning of the HIV-AIDS crisis and then spent the next 20 years really leading the response both in the U.S. and globally on behalf of U.S. government. And I think there's some really interesting parallels to the arc of that crisis, the way that people talked about it, the political challenges at hand that was faced then with the refugee crisis now. There's a deep sense of defeatism. There's a sense that the political constraints are overwhelming. There's a sense that there aren't the kind of solutions and understanding of it. And I'm really curious to get her reflections on what she's taken from you know, working in that space uh, in HIV-AIDS and thinking about how we can apply it to the refugee crisis today. And she's also uh, having led these large organisations in a great place to think about how you organise large humanitarian organisations. And it's a massive challenge at the moment. How do you scale up and, and meet the level of need? That's happened in HIV and AIDS. It's not happening in the refugee crisis. And that's something I think we can dig into. It's really rare to get the opportunity to talk with somebody who has been in senior leadership positions in the humanitarian space and development space, driving institutions and really shaping the sector in response. So I'm really looking forward to her lessons and reflections. Today, we have Helene Gale. So welcome and thank you for, for joining us. Thanks. My pleasure. Great. And we're going to hit all of those pieces that Ravi mentioned, but I uh, wanted to start at the beginning. So in uh, doing a little background research, I, I read that you grew up in Buffalo and your mother was a social worker and that your father ran a barber and beauty shop. Um, and one of the interesting things that you've noted was that a lot of the local members of the Black Panther Party stopped by to uh, uh, engage in that business. And I would love to hear what it was like growing up in that kind of community and how you think that shaped your view of politics and uh, service. Yeah, well, my father um, had a small business, a barber and beauty supply company, and it was really very much right in the heart of Buffalo's black community. And we saw all sorts of people coming through, uh, barbers and beauticians and uh, community activists and of all stripes and uh, shapes. And so, you know, I think early on, it um, gave me a sense of what some of the challenges were and um, exposed me very early to a broad uh, array of, of different people. You know, I grew up in a family and grew up in times that really um, cemented for me the the notion that I wanted to be 
part of something bigger than myself. Um, my family was a family that was very focused on giving back to the community. My mother is a social worker, as you mentioned. My father, um, as a small businessman, was really very much part of the community. And business was almost a backdrop for being a, a way of giving back to the community in his own way. And so that was very much part of my family upbringing. But I also grew up in the era of the 60s and early 70s during a time of real social change in this country, whether it was uh, civil rights or women's rights, anti-apartheid, um, anti-Vietnam War protests, all of these things that I think really helped make me see and appreciate a sense of what was possible in terms of social change. And so, I, you know, it, it really was a huge part of determining what I wanted to do with myself, where I felt like I really wanted to have a career and a life that helped me to tangibly address issues of social justice and, and, and equity. That's really fascinating. I, th- I think about the 60s as just a time when there was such a larger aperture for what was possible right. um, in the past 50 years. And it's, it's I think, interesting. You ground to, down already, Grant. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting to just think about that as kind of a foundational moment for the types of then uh, individuals and leaders like you coming up at, in that era and the policy shift that you then see later um, as compared to, I think, people who are coming up in the 70s and 80s. And I don't know, is that something that resonates when you think about that just being a time that had kind of a larger sense of the realm of possibility? Yeah, no, I think it, it definitely helped to shape me. Um, you know, I was very socially active as a student, very involved in student government and, um, you know, kind of out there uh, with a lot of grassroots organizers. And so I think that that social change bug hit me very early and and has stayed with me throughout my career. You've had a really broad career that spanned government service, working at the Centre for Disease Control, leading a private sector organisation, McKinsey and their social initiative, and in a large non-profit, CARE. How do those different organisations tackle the same or similar problems? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I feel like I've been very fortunate and, you know, it's kind of random. It it wasn't my, um, it wasn't some master plan that I went from CDC and the government to the Gates Foundation and private philanthropy, then to care and a nonprofit. And then, you know, now back in philanthropy as um, uh, heading the community trust. Uh, All of these things, you know, kind of had the same thread of how do I... um, contribute in ways that address big social challenges. And I think that, you know, it was very, um, for me, you know, again, not planned, but the fact that I was able to go from diff- from one sector to the next and different sectors to be able to see how you do approach problems from different angles and how you work with different constituents. And I think it's um, uh, allowed me to perhaps be more flexible and think of problem solving in a more integrated way than than I think you do if you stay only in one sector. And do you think that government versus the private sector versus voluntary organisations, do they solve those problems in very different ways? Do they have different capacities or limitations? Yeah, I think they do have different capacities, different limitations. Um, 
as example, you know, in government, you often have large budgets and the ability to bring things to scale, but you also have the um, limiting factor of the largeness of bureaucracy and sometimes the political imperatives that go along or, or the political um, limitations sometimes that go along with government with with being government. And, you know, the dance that you have with public accountability is both, I think, a real plus, but it also sometimes can be an inhibiting factor. So I think, you know, government has huge, um, you know, huge opportunities for bringing things to scale and taking what we know works and moving it forward. But I think sometimes, you know, aided with philanthropy um, that has the ability to perhaps be more flexible uh, do things in new and different and innovative ways in a way that is less constrained than you may be in government. And then, you know, in times where I've had the opportunity to interface with the private sector, I think some of the the rigor that goes with private sector and business thinking um, has a lot to offer as we think about, you know, in some ways blurring those lines between uh, social good and economic growth, where economic growth can actually be a huge engine for for social impact and social change. So I, I really I think being able to attack those problems, to attack big problems from all those different angles, and increasingly looking at how do we develop partnerships across those lines that can bring the complementary skills of the private sector, the public sector, the not-for-profit sector together, you know, are hugely important. Just to, to follow up on the partnership piece, because I think this is something that is becoming increasingly elevated in the conversation of how we respond to crises on the humanitarian side, on the development side, on the human rights side. Um, what are the features of good public-private partnerships that you've seen? And is there an example that comes to mind that you would illustrate for us where you're like, that's that's what worked well and that's kind of the magic sauce that needs to go into this? You know, I think some of it is is, first of all, um, recognizing that you come together with with different perspectives and appreciating those different perspectives and then learning and sharing so that you understand what are the different incentives and what are the different um, advantages and constraints of all the different partners. And then I think having common goals so that you really are working towards something that's very tangible. I think we've all seen partnerships where people come together kind of kumbaya and, you know, want to do these great uh, partnerships, but, you know, they're very fuzzy and intangible. And so I think the more tangible, particularly in the beginning of partnerships you can be, and the more you can appreciate and and get to understand each other's uh, perspective, the better. You know, I I often give this example of working um, when I was at CARE, uh, when we were doing a lot of work on social enterprises, and we were working with a financial services industry looking at issues of financial inclusion. And, you know, I was talking to our our partner in the financial institution who said, you know, I get financial inclusion. It makes sense to me. I've been working with you all long enough to understand what that term means. But when I talk to my colleagues, you know, when I say financial inclusion, their eyes glaze over. But when I say a billion new customers, they get it. (laughs) And so I think you have to figure out what are the different incentives and, and really work on how you start talking each other's languages and how you really work together towards a common goal. And can I just take you back to the early part of your career on HIV and AIDS? Because when I think about the refugee crisis now, 
an issue that's commanding huge global attention, but is also creating a sense of defeatism, that it's almost too overwhelming for us to deal with. It feels like the situation back in the 80s and early 90s around HIV and AIDS. And I'm just really interested to learn from you about what we can learn from how you tackle such a big, complex global issue where there are major political challenges, but also operational and and technical challenges. Well, you know, I think you kind of think big, but start small. You know, no big challenge is ever won because you take it on all at once. And I think you have to take it in, in, in steps and figure out what's the long game, but also what are the, the steps in between that you can um, accomplish things all along the way. I think that has an important motivating factor to be able to have some, as people say, quick wins, if you will. And I don't know that there's anything as quick wins in some of these, but at least having tangible short-term measures that tell you that you're getting closer to your goal so that you are both uh, maintaining momentum, but also maintaining um, a sense of, of what's possible. You know, when it came to HIV, I think, you know, one of the things that was so critical there and I think has um, increasingly been used in, in other issues, it's having people who are involved themselves being on the front lines. If it hadn't been for AIDS activists, we would not have gotten to where we are today. So I think, you know, people who can tell their stories about what does it mean to be an immigrant? What does it mean to have your families ripped apart? What does it mean to uh, be a stranger in somebody else's land and figure out how to begin life anew? So I think those stories that make it real to people and having people who have gone through those experiences themselves being part of it is a huge part, I think, of, of mobilizing the kind of support that we got in the HIV. HIV um, era because we had people living with HIV who came and spoke on their own behalf. I think it makes it more real to people. I think it makes it more tangible. And all of these things are accomplished not only because you have groups of committed people banding together, but because you have political leadership and political will. Without political will, we never would have gotten where we uh where we got to in the in fighting HIV. And so I think the same thing needs to happen and is happening increasingly um, when we think about uh, issues of uh, immigration. It's interesting when I— And refugees. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think about the activism in— through ACT UP and a lot of other groups that did really foundational, amazing work that called and made out. it very uncomfortable for us at times, but it made <laughs> us move forward. You know, I hear stories that you had tomatoes thrown at you. Oh yeah, <laughs> but were you not willing them on on the sidelines? Because when I was in government, oh, yeah, I was sure. thinking, come on, give no, us no, some exactly, more. Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, you got to have that inside outside game. And so while it was sometimes uncomfortable, I was never ever uh, one who. Um, was offended or, um, you know, particularly upset by the activists. They were doing their role. I was doing mine. The the thing that I find different between kind of that era and uh, the parallels between the refugee crisis that you're trying to pull out, Ravi, are a lot of those activists were citizens of the state, right? They're going back to the government. They could apply pressure to government because there was a sense of accountability, whereas refugees often have crossed borders and have no political rights um, and are in a much trickier situation in terms of the strategies that they can draw on for advocacy um, and the voices that they can articulate in that way. And I think about the HIV AIDS um, era as one in which it was really frontier aggressive activism um, that may not have the kind of same resonance today. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether 
you think it's possible to kind of generate that same type of advocacy in this moment? Well, you know, I think it's hard to draw exact parallels, um, but I think there are people who, for instance, were refugees themselves who can come back and tell those stories. And I think there are more people like that who can come forward and be a voice for these issues. You know, I think about the situation in our own country where those young um, men and women in, from Florida um, stood up and talked about the issue of gun violence and mm-hmm. how how it affected them. And I think it wasn't until we heard the, from the voices of those children themselves and how it was affecting their lives that it started to hit home. You know, so I, you know, I just don't underestimate the power of people telling their own stories in a way that can convince even the most hardened hearts sometimes about the importance of this. Because if we give it a human face, I think people do start listening. I think that's absolutely right. To take you back to kind of the beginning of your time at the CDC, you started as an epidemic intelligence service officer, which is an amazing title. (laughs) Well, what is an epidemic intelligence (laughs) service officer? (laughs) Well, the EIS program, the Epidemic Intelligence Service uh, program, is a two-year training program for people who want to enter into the public health field. And it's a kind of a medical detective school, if you will, and mm-hmm. you go for two years. I want to get... join that school. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a great experience. You know, I came to the Centers for Disease Control thinking I would stay for that two-year epidemiology training program and stayed for 20. So, you know, it was a fascinating time. It was a fascinating career. Um, and the EIS was kind of the uh, entry point into that. Okay, detective training school worked. It kept you there for 20 years. Yeah. So I think one of the interesting parts is that you began when the HIV AIDS crisis was just starting, but to the best of my knowledge, CDC didn't have an HIV AIDS unit um, established at that point, but that was a transition that then took place. Well, it was very, uh, when I came on, there was a small HIV program that had already started. And, you know, if I think back when I graduated from medical school in 1981, um, HIV had not yet been described. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went to the Centers for Disease Control and we do this kind of matching, you you, you go through and you talk to a lot of the different programs and decide where you want to go. And as I was getting counsel from people, they all said, well, you know, stay away from that HIV. It's not that important. And it's this political issue, hotbed. Uh, you don't want to do that. Go do something that has real public health impact. So um, I didn't actually go directly into HIV my first couple of years, but quickly realized as I was at CDC that, you know, this was not something that was going to go away overnight and that it was going to have a serious impact uh, on public health, um, and that it was going to have a serious impact on populations that were most marginalized and stigmatized in our society. And so for me, it was kind of the perfect um, blend of a scientifically interesting issue that had that was going to have major public health impact, but that was also very much uh, something that was embedded in some of the social fault lines of our society. And you mentioned science there. And one of the interesting things about the debate many years ago was that it was actually quite an evidence-free um, conversation. And it was quite difficult to get those scientific arguments heard. I think in particularly in the 1990s, South African President Thabo Mbeki completely mm-hmm. rejected the idea that AIDS was a infectious disease. And even uh, 15 years later in 2006, the South African health minister recommended that AIDS be treated with lemon, beetroot and garlic. And I'm just interested in how you played that role in making evidence and science um, 
dominant in the in the debate because again I think we've got some similar questions in the refugee crisis about how we make evidence uh, a guide to action. Well, you know, I think part of the reason is um obvious as it may seem looking at it externally when a disease that is as stigmatized as HIV was because it was shrouded and connected to sex and and drugs and it had been connected to marginalized populations, stigmatized populations, you know, it wasn't a disease that people were embracing to have your country defined by. And so I think, um, you know, South Africa was not alone in backing away from accepting this as as a real serious issue. And I think people wanted to find any excuse um, to to distance themselves from this very stigmatizing disease. And so I think, you know, it there was a huge mistake in the very beginning by saying that HIV was a disease of hemophiliacs, Haitians, and homosexuals, mm. um, you know, and from the very beginning painting it as something that was ugly and dirty, and therefore those who had it were ugly and dirty. And I think it says something about how we need to, again, frame the issue of refugees in a, in a positive way and, and in a way that, that respects the dignity and humanity of, of people who are part of that uh, refugee crisis. And so, you know, I think how we start off talking about these issues has a huge impact on how, whether people embrace it uh, and whether people um, continue to paint people who are affected with it in ways that, by definition, creates denial. That's uh, an interesting strand to think about how the narratives that we put together at the beginning then shape kind of political incentives for how elites potentially craft uh, the way that, you know, they kind of illustrate these things. And one of the things that kind of you're notorious for is really directly engaging a lot of global leaders while you were kind of at the forefront of U.S. policymaking. And I'd love to hear about what you found effective in engaging with leaders who held beliefs that were either wrong-minded or wrong for their population uh, to change them. Well, you know, I think trying to start with wherever there is some common ground seems to me to be the the best way to do that and and not starting with the most polarizing issues. So, um, you know, as an example— uh, you know, I did a lot of work in sexually transmitted diseases, sexual health, um, and issues that touch on the issues of women's reproductive rights. Now, we know that that is an issue that is incredibly polarizing because of people's very, very strong beliefs around abortion. So if you start a discussion about family planning, uh, starting it from the idea that births spaced too closely together are bad for a woman's health and a children and children's health that's that's something that is hard for most people to disagree with nobody wants women to die needlessly nobody wants children to die needlessly so if you start from the fact that spacing children is a good thing for mothers and for for babies you can probably get to a pretty common place on the issue of whether or not women should have access to uh, ways to, in fact, do that. And if they are able to do that voluntarily and with, uh, you know, all options available, um, 
in you know in a non-judgmental fashion, you can probably get 85% of people on. The 15% mm-hmm. that you're not, it may not be worth it. But I think if you can start with the most uh, common sense, universal principles and then build out from that, you're likely to get a pretty good consensus on most issues. So after many years in the health field, you then went to lead CARE, one of the largest nonprofit organisations working in over 90 countries, helping to reduce poverty, but also dealing with humanitarian crises. Really interested to get your perspective on what you were trying to achieve when you joined CARE and what were the big challenges you thought the sector faced uh, when you were there and, and, and how you went about sort of addressing them. Yeah, so, you know, I went from... Um, HIV and AIDS and, and global public health to, as I call it, address, addressing the kind of root causes. And, you know, if I think about myself as a health professional and what are the things that could have the greatest impact on on saving lives, it is reducing poverty and inequity because ultimately th- that's one of the biggest contributors to poor health and poor life overall. So, um, you know, our goal was really, and as you know, CARE started out primarily focusing on emergencies after World War II, giving out care packages to, to help in the rebuilding of Europe, expanded from only looking at short-term uh, aid for humanitarian crises to then looking at how do you look at the longer-term development and look at how do you un- attack the underlying causes of poverty. One of those was that we thought was was clearly very important was how do you make a difference in the lives of girls and women who are disproportionately impacted by poverty and you know all the data shows that if you can invest in girls education women's economic empowerment you have an impact not only on those individuals but on their families their communities and a huge impact and a huge return on investment for societies overall so we had a, a really big sh- not shift in our focus but you know greater emphasis on the on the issue of empowering girls and women in that context including in a, in in our humanitarian uh, assistance and, and relief efforts because, again, women and, and children are oftentimes disproportionately impacted in those crises. They're the ones who are um, more likely to be malnourished and not have access to to um, adequate nutrition, oftentimes living in non-hygienic situations that increase uh, maternal mortality rates, children more likely to get some of the communicable communicable childhood diseases that can lead to death because of lack of vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it was something that flowed throughout our our work there. You know, I think um, while I was at CARE, you know, there were a lot of issues that affected the sector. I think the issue of shrinking humanitarian space, uh, a big one that we started to see that continues to, in, to increase. Um, the whole questioning of large international NGOs and their legitimacy as um, indigenous and community-based organizations within countries grew, developed, and saw themselves at times in competition with international uh, organizations. And I think we worked very hard to make sure that what we were doing was actually empowering groups on the ground to be not only our partners, but to increasingly take the lead. You know, I think looking at what was happening in terms of foreign, the shifts in foreign aids, we, we had a huge foreign aid, foreign aid heyday where 
governments were incredibly um, committed to foreign assistance, and we're starting to see that commitment shrink. At the same time, we're seeing more and more private sector and particularly multinational corporations understanding that their economic um, well-being is also tied to their social uh, engagement and and their w- ability to be good citizens and create social value in in communities in which they work around the world. So I think that's that's been a positive trend. But uh, but that said, you know, there's also sometimes ba- backlashes from that. So I think there are a lot of cha- there were a lot of challenges that I think continue today um, in this sector of humanitarian and development work. So my background is in um, in strategy. And one of the classic questions that strategists tend to ask is, what can you focus on? What can you stop doing? And when I joined the IRC, my first um, impression was, wow, this is an organisation that's working in so many different countries across so many sectors. And can you be excellent if you are so spread? And this is something that you see across a lot of the large international NGOs, right? And it's easy to think about how you get there. You want to improve uh, the quality of people's lives and ensure they're thriving. And all of a sudden, that means you're likely working on health, education, uh, economic empowerment, and a a broad set of issues that I think takes you down to the point that you're making. Yeah. And I think that what's fascinating about what you said, in fact, about care was that it evolved from an organization that was very humanitarian focused to one that was more about tackling the underlying causes. It went from food aid to non-food aid to a whole set of other services, went from just being focused on Europe to being genuinely global. And I'm wondering about to what extent do you think those are sensible strategic shifts to adapt to the changing needs and opportunities? Or is there a risk of mission creep and and dilution of effort? Yeah, you know, I definitely think um, organizations need to evolve. You know, organizations you know, like CARE and IRC that have been around for for decades um, can't be the organization that they were when they first started. And I think we need to continue to evolve and be relevant while remembering what our core mission is. That said, you know, when you're a nonprofit and you're, uh, to a certain extent, always at the whim of donors, I think it's hard to resist the mission creep. If large donors are interested in a particular area, it's hard to, for the sake of survival of your organization, to not be pulled in that direction. You know, I used to always say if I could get my whole budget on an annual basis, which was at that time, I think about uh, half a billion dollars or so, uh, all Distrib- all given to me as unrestricted resources, I would make much different strategic decisions than I did, given the fact that we had a small unrestricted budget and then lots of project-specific restricted funding. So I think part that's, of it— That's is, fascinating. What would you have actually done if you'd had that half a billion um, completely free? I, you know, I, and and I, can, would you actually focus a lot more on health? Because that's an area which obviously has deep need, great evidence compared to, say, other sectors. Uh, well, you know, there were there's a lot of global health players, and I'm not sure that that was necessarily CARE's greatest role. I think, you know, um, there are incredible health needs. There are incredible um, interventions, as you said, that are evidence-based and data-driven. But we can't all be health organizations. So I think, you know, it's hard to say right now what 
specific. I, you know, I, I think we were doing some really great work in economic development. Maybe we could have just done economic development. Uh, maybe we should have only done education or maybe we should have done several more comprehensive because I actually believe uh, – development and change happens in more integrated ways than just taking one sector by sector at a time. But maybe we could have had integrated programs in five countries and done them well. I, You know, what the strategic choices are, um, you know, I think depend on always depend on what some of the needs are, who else is in the field, and how do you think about your comparative advantage. But I do know that we could have made very different decisions if those resources were unconstrained by, you know, by project and restricted funding. One of the, I think, amazing decisions that you made during your tenure as CEO at CARE was pulling out of uh, the kind of American-sponsored food aid program. Um, and this was, I think, to the tune of $45 million a year for CARE. And if I understand it correctly, it was a decision to not support uh, the food aid program, which is functionally a, a way for the U.S. to give food to uh, areas in need, but through delivering actual food that's produced um, in excess here in the United States and so functionally shipping it there, um, as opposed to you know a variety of other strategies, including just giving money to those local markets or purchasing it locally. And I would love you to take us through that decision-making process about how you decided to pull out. It's really rare, I think, for organisations to say, no, I'm going to refuse this money, even with the costs that that imposes on the organisation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is, as, as always is the case, there is no decision that one person makes. This was, you know, an organization that had been thinking about this for a long time and was very, really poised to make this this decision. And I think the decision was made on the basis of a strong belief that if we were going to do what was right by our mission of trying to end long-term, truly um, end long-term poverty, um, that having, being part of a practice that not only was inefficient, so you take food, you have to ship it over in an American carrier, uh, once it gets there, you either distribute it on markets, local markets, which means the local um, agricultural produ productivity is is uh, diminished, and people can't get their crops. And therefore, you know, in these countries, that agriculture is a huge economic engine that's depressing their opportunities. But it was also a very inefficient way of generating cash because oftentimes it was transported over and then converted from crops into cash. It was sold. Um, the, the crops themselves were sold. And then that cash was used to fund development programs. And as you said, it would have been a lot more efficient to just give us those resources. And it had the, you know, the chilling effect on the on the economy of flooding local markets with foreign um, crops. So, you know, we just felt that if we were true to our mission, we had to think about backing out of that. And it wasn't just and CARE wasn't the only one who believed that. We were just the only ones who were willing to um, take that decision because we felt that if we did, you know, either others would follow or it would have a huge impact on on policy um, change. And in fact, it did. Uh, that policy change followed maybe five to seven years later, and we had some difficult financial times in the meantime. But I think in the end, um, you know, it was the right thing to do. Can I just push you on this question of strategic focus again? Because you mentioned that um, 
care has a dual mandate, both a development mandate and a humanitarian one. Um, that has some sort of benefits, particularly in a world where people are displaced for much longer. Uh, the development and humanitarian worlds are coming together. We're trying to bridge them. But it does have some challenges, particularly because it means instead of working in, say, 30 countries, which IRC is, it's working, care was working in about 90. And you have this very ambitious goal of actually trying to change the fundamental development trajectory of a of a country. And that feels potentially almost overambitious or even hubristic, particularly from a non-profit organisation. So I'm just interested in whether you felt like the mission was doable and whether fundamentally um, we need to sort of have more focused organisations from a mission perspective. Yeah, well, I think we saw our mission as being committed to the countries that we worked in. And that meant that the line between whether or not we were doing humanitarian assistance or whether we were doing long-term development was really blurred because our commitment were was to those countries and if and we worked in countries where we we stayed over decades because our goal was really to build capacity in country and to make sure that we were really strengthening the you know ability at the the local level so if there was a humanitarian crisis we were there we were well placed to be able to respond and we felt that commitment. It would have been hard with our long-term commitment to the countries that we worked in to say, sorry, you have a humanitarian crisis. We'll leave that to somebody else. So we didn't see it as two missions. We saw it as a commitment to the countries in which we worked in. And that meant that at times, uh, and increasingly, particularly given a lot of the natural disasters that are occurring as a result of, of cl- climate change, you know, we realized that we had to stand with those countries, whether it was short-term assistance that they need or whether it was the long-term development needs. So you are now the CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, uh, a community foundation dedicated to regional improvement through grant-making, civic engagement, and inspiring philanthropy. In the transition from CARE and then uh, the McKinsey uh, Social Initiative that you were at in between, What's been the biggest difference in moving from kind of a globally oriented institution to a locally oriented institution? Well, the biggest change is that uh, I don't have as many um, long flights and jet lag. (laughs) (laughs) Get much better sleep nowadays. Yeah, uh, I actually sleep uh, uh, full nights now. But no, you know, I think in some ways um, what I've seen are a lot of parallels between what I was doing globally and what I was doing domestically. Yes, um, we're in the United States. The systems are perhaps more complex. Uh, There's a greater density of support. But in many ways, the issues of inequity and um, disparities are very similar. And so, you know, I feel like I'm very fortunate to be able to take some of my learnings from the global arena and apply those to the local level. Um, I see more, in in many ways, I see more similarities than than differences. What are the similarities that, and lessons that you take and apply? Well, one, I think that um, listening to communities and working alongside communities is critical. And in some ways, I think we do that better in the global arena than we do in in the domestic arena. I think there's a certain um, lack of appreciation for the fact that people who come from different parts of our society who have different heritages, different cultures, um, are not all homogenous, don't fit under some homogenous 
label of Americans. And I think by listening to the different voices of Americans, I think we'll be in a much better situation of really looking at what are the solutions that will make a difference in communities, particularly communities that have been disinvested in, where people haven't appreciated the assets that those communities have and only thought about the deficits. You know, and I think we sometimes do that better internationally, where we, we appreciate the wisdom of the communities that we work in. Grant and I um, work at the Innovation Lab at, at IRC, and we're obviously always trying to scan for new ideas. And I'm just interested, given your vantage point now in, in Chicago, but also at McKinsey Social Initiative, what are the most dynamic ideas or practices that are really exciting you uh, that we can learn from and potentially apply in, in solving the refugee crisis? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a strong believer in the value of partnerships that are complementary. You know, when I was in in many of the different roles that I've played, when we thought about partnerships, it was traditionally, how do you work with, with organizations that are like you? And that's that's fine, but then you're just bringing the same skill sets to the table. And I think when you really do stretch yourself and look at how do you bring in organizations that may be very different, the public sector and the private sector, nonprofits, and government and really are committed to working together. You know, private sector often says, I don't want to have anything to do with government. They're bureaucratic, uh, you know, they're corrupt, et cetera. But without the public sector to scale up some of the things that private sector may start, you may not um, have the kind of long-lasting effect that you will. People, you know, in the nonprofit and government often say, you know, the private sector, all they're interested in is profit. Well, yes, businesses are in the business, if you will, of, of generating revenue. But, you know, it is one of the only sources of renewable economic growth that we have that we know has always, um, when done right, been able to create huge social value jobs, as an example, and figuring out how do we think more more creatively about job creation and working with the private sector. When I was at McKinsey's Social Initiative, one of our biggest programs was the generation program that was a jobs program for um, what we call opportunity youth, youth who had been kind of disengaged from the workforce. Had we not worked hand in glove with the private sector so that we were looking at both the demand side as well as the supply side, that program would not have worked. So I think those are the kinds of partnerships where you really look at what does each person bring, what each organization bring to the table, and then figure out how do you get these kind of win-win situations. That's where I think you can have really kind of open up innovation um, in you know to create great social change and lasting social change. I want to wrap on a, on a question um, that was inspired by something I read uh, in a Washington Post article in which your brother called you an introverted loner. Um, <laughs> and maybe he was throwing you under the bus, but uh, I think one of Don't the— Don't just love your family. <laughs> I think one of the impressions and often expectations of leaders at your level is actually that there's a gregariousness and extroversion and that you know they derive their energy from being in groups. And so— was wondering whether you think they get that model wrong or whether you're now going to have to call your brother for throwing you under the bus inaccurately. 
Yeah, well, we all raised our eyebrows a bit when he made that comment. I, I guess maybe that's just because I don't talk enough to him. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think we, uh, my, my brother, who's also had a long career in public health, is kind of like, a, as I describe him, a big puppy dog. You know, he, he's <laughs> all over you. That's just not my style. Uh, but nobody who knows me would really call me an introverted loner. I guess, though— that, you know, his point was that, you know, as a leader, there are times where you really do have to learn to keep your own company because uh, as a leader, you often are in very lonely places. And as somebody who is by nature kind of very socially um, inclined, you know, I've had to learn over the years how to be comfortable with my own self and and be comfortable with those lonely moments that you face as as a leader. Um, You know, I think to your point, there is no one profile of a leader. Um, Leaders come in all shapes, stripes, sizes, colors, et cetera. And I think everybody has to figure out what's their own authentic style so that they can be the leader that most taps into who they are as as a person. Aline Gale, thank you so much for being on Displaced. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kowa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.